welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim, here today alone in this intro, but don't worry, Lance is in the interview. In this episode, we speak to a woman named Kristen Seavey. She's a podcaster, she's an actress. She does a great podcast called Murder She Told. And you can check them out at MurderSheTold.com or follow them at MurderTold on Twitter. And in this conversation, we discuss the disappearance of Reeves Johnson from Kittery, Maine on February 3rd, 1982. Reeves Johnson was 31 years old when he went missing, about 5'7", 130 pounds, and a white male. The folks at Murder, She Told did an incredible episode, and they actually had full participation from the Kittery Police Department, which is a really great development when podcasting and law enforcement can come together like that. So make sure to check out the full episode at Murder, She Told. You can follow the Reeves Johnson Facebook page at Missing Reeves. And if you have any information, please call the Kittery Police Department at 207-439-1638. Or you can email Brian Kummer at B-C-U-M-M-E-R at KitteryPolice.com. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. Make sure to check out Murder, She Told. And follow us on social media at Crawlspace Podcast or Crawlspace Pod. And you can get all of our episodes ad-free as well as bonus shows called The Crawlspace Crypt and the audio from our Crime and Culture Live on our new Crawlspace subscription service. You can subscribe at crawlspace.supportingcast.com. And it's all up and running now. A lot of bonus content. It's looking great. So check that out. Tiers start at $5 a month. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the podcast, Kristen Seavey. How are you today? I'm actually doing really well. How are you? We're actually doing really well uh, also. Um, awesome. This sounded very yeah. formal, but yeah, I'm doing great. Great. Yeah. You just um, It's very rare that we have a guest on that is uh, brings that energy right off the bat. So thank you for that. Well, I'm honored. 
<laughs> well, you host a podcast. Uh, you produce, host, um, run the show over there at probably one of the cleverest titled podcasts I've seen called Murder, She Told, which is uh, a play on Murder, She Wrote. Is it? Um, a fan favorite here at Crawl Space Media. Yes. Um, so I, I like Murder, She Wrote. And it's funny because like I cover stories from like Maine and New England, um, which I'm from Maine. And then I was thinking of names. It took me like a month. I'd been playing with different keywords. And then I remembered, wait, Murder, She Wrote takes place in Maine. So then I went and I looked to see if variations had been taken and Murder, She Told hadn't. And I was like, oh, that's it. And I instantly bought the URL, started like just claiming it because I was like, this is it. This is the name. Yeah, it is a good name. And do you see yourself as a bit of an Angela Lansbury? Oh, that's, that's a really high bar. I mean, she's like, she's a dame. I am not a dame. Um, so that maybe one day, but. Okay. Well, have... what about Jessica Fletcher then? Sorry. Yeah. She's also, you know, I don't know. That's a really high bar. That's asking a lot. <laughs> well, Tim sees himself as a Jessica Fletcher. Really? I love that. Yes. Yep. All the time. I uh, I see myself a little bit of a Columbo type too, you could say. Well, it looks like the position is already filled, so I don't I don't know if there's space for me to be Jessica Fletcher 2.0. Ooh, that's like a. I don't know why I pictured like RoboCop when you said that. Definitely RoboCop. If if Jessica Fletcher was RoboCop, we're RoboCop. Yeah, I'm more like a Jessica Tandy type. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's my Jessica Tandy. <laughs> well, Kristen, tell us a little bit about your podcast. Besides the Jessica Fletcher inspiration, why did you launch your own podcast? So it, it kind of started as a pandemic project. Um, I lost all my work and um, I started researching cases around me because I realized that I didn't know much about them. And I was like, wait, can I do this? Like I had previously been on another podcast that doesn't exist. And then I was like, maybe I can start my own. So then I just researched and I started writing. Um, I grew up watching Unsolved Mysteries. So like I've, I've been doing research on cases since I was a kid. Um, I'm also a victim's advocate. I'm a credentialed victim's advocate. So I also it kind of pairs up with wanting to give these families a voice because you don't hear Maine making national media like pretty much ever. Like I barely ever hear Maine cases on bigger podcasts um, or in national news. And there's just so many cases here that are unsolved that don't get any attention. Um, so I wanted to help fill that void and I just kind of started it like not really knowing what to expect. And it's really, it's been a really rewarding process. Very cool. And and welcome aboard. I'll, uh, the entire true crime community is uh, super unique and, and supportive of each other for the most part. Um, so uh, it's always good to have somebody who comes aboard in this manner in which you did. Like you are a licensed victims advocate. Uh, can you unpack that for us a little bit? Um, so it's actually fairly new. I took, um, you have to take 40 hours of classes and then you have to apply for it. So I took a class um, 
through a college where I learned about like victimology and then I ended up like submitting an application and they approve you or deny you. And then they give you like, um, they give you your credentials. And so I have like the knowledge to assist people or like go further in that space. If I wanted to like pursue a professional career in advocacy, I'm at like the, I think it's provincial level or like the the bottom level, whatever, like the entry level is. And then there's continuing education that I have to do to keep that up. Um, and then also if I wanted to go further with that, I could too, but you know, I really just did it for me because I wanted to better be able to talk with people and like support them because they're opening up to me about like the worst things that have ever happened to them and they're sharing their trauma. And I just want to be able to support them more than just being an empathetic person and a good listener. Um, so yeah, if I wanted to continue, um, in advocacy and, and grow like an actual career, I have like the basis to do that now. Wow. That's very cool. Are there any tips, uh, that you could give us or the, or the audience in, um, in that kind of work? listening. I think listening to people and trying to understand like where they're coming from when they're telling you about things and not, I think like everybody can just be a better listener in that scenario and just coming from a really empathetic standpoint when you're hearing people's stories. You know, it sounds like really simple advice there, but I think a lot of the times that goes, it doesn't, uh, it's not processed fully that listening is an actual important element to being a victim's advocate listen you know having having communication with the the family of a victim or the family of a missing person um it goes beyond nodding and saying you know i'm, I'm terribly sorry for your loss it's like you can tell when someone's listening and when someone is just sort of being present yeah or like waiting for your turn to say something or insert mm -hmm. your opinion um you know it's really about like creating a safe environment for them and making them understand that they are safe, um, which, you know, in, in my situation is different because I'm not responding to immediate in the moment trauma, I'm responding to older trauma. Um, so, you know, if I were a victim's advocate on the scene, it would be a little bit different, but still that like sense of safety, I think plays a part in what I do because I want people to trust me and feel like they're being taken care of um, and that I believe them. I feel like too, you know, especially victims of cold cases or missing persons that have gone on for so long, they feel like they haven't been heard. Um, and sometimes, you know, giving them a platform like mine is the first time where they're like, I feel like my voice is being heard. And um, how has those credentials and that experience helped you in your podcast? it's a very much like a background role. Like, I don't even think I've officially announced it to people. Um, so here's my official announcement. Like I've, We've I've got a people, <laughs> I kind of put it like in my email. Um, but I haven't really like announced it. Um, I think it's just more, more of like a background role so that I know that I have done the work that I need to do to support the people that I'm talking to. Um, which is more important to me than kind of like waving around a credential. Um, I guess it could make me seem more legitimate with what I do. So. Yeah, no, it, de it definitely does. Um, and I think a family member who is uh, approached by you, uh, knowing that you've got experience um, and 
training um, from professionals in that in that field, I would say that's a much easier um, journey for them. Yeah, uh, I think yeah. it it gives me a sense of like, or gives them a sense of like more trust in me, or at least I would hope. Um, if not, I hope that I can earn their trust. Okay, so tell us about your work. Um, do you have a background in journalism? I don't. I have a background in storytelling and acting. So like, that's what I went to school for. So I kind of just combined my interests in like crime and storytelling. Um, what's great about having a podcast is that I, the one that I was previously on um, gave me like storytelling that I could do at home, you know, like in between projects. And I just really enjoyed it. It was really fun. So I do not have a background in journalism, though this is kind of a form of journalism, but I'm not formally trained. <laughs> well, you're certainly doing something right um, because Murder, She Told was an Apple podcast and Spotify podcast, top 10 true crime podcasts, um, which you can uh, find that on your website, MurderSheTold.com. Um, so something along the, the way uh, you, you're, you're doing right. So good on you for that. And you've also managed to raise a ton of media and a ton of awareness for the person that we're going to talk about today, Reeves Johnson. Before we get into the details of his particular case, and very, I mean, every one of these cases has a rabbit hole for the most part. They have one token that you look at and whether it's Brianna Maitland's car backed into the Dutch burn house or Maura Murray's car on the side of the road. Reeves Johnson's case has the, the guy in the red hat, that picture, and you can dive down that rabbit hole. But before we get into all of that, the press that you received for this, was that, how did that come to be? I reached out to them. It just did like a really big press release. And I reached out to people because I was, you know, we had just created this really big episode. Like generally my episodes are from like 30 minutes, maybe to an hour. Um, they tend to fall around like the 40 minute mark, but I knew that I wanted to do a press release for this one. Um, and I put everything into one episode. So it's kind of like a monster episode because like, the first half is kind of about his life. And the second half is the stuff that you need to know um, in order to possibly help move this case forward. Um, and often there's like attrition between a part one and a part two. So I was like, let's just put it all together. Um, so from there, I just sent the episode out to a ton of media outlets and the ones that bit did. And they helped me to move it forward. Cause I was like, this photo of this man has not been publicized ever. Um, the Seacoast online article was the first time that Reeves name really hit the internet. Um, and that's where I learned about the case was through that. And I was like, man, we got to get this photo out there. Um, so after I'd connected with the family and, and the police, I was like, I can help you get this out there. Um, and I just basically tried to get as many people interested in sharing this story as possible. Well, really well done. And uh, is this a local case to you? It is. Um, it's like two hours away from me. So like local in the sense that it's in Maine, but not local to where I am because I'm in central Maine. Um, and this is down at the very, very, very bottom of Maine, like almost in New Hampshire. And the, the story itself also does take place in the like Portsmouth, New Hampshire area. Okay. So uh, tell us a little bit about Reeves Johnson. 
So Reeves Johnson grew up in Philly. Um, That's where his family was from. His dad loved Philly. I remember his sister, Sally, telling me that he had job opportunities in California, in Tokyo, and like these really exciting places. And he chose Philly because he loved Philly. Um, So his parents were Barbara and Kemp Johnson. He has an older sister named Sally and a younger brother named Hugh. And both of them are interviewed um, in my episode and speak really beautifully about their brother. I think at his core, Reeves was, he was a very like thought provoking person. He loved anything that challenged um, his thinking. He was a very deep thinker. He was sometimes very stubborn. Um, he was very studious and kept to himself, himself a lot. And he was a learner. So his dad really would like challenge the kids at the table. They, they would have discussions and like kind of debates almost. And this really, um, I think cultivated a sense of learning and deeper thinking. And so he loved to read, absolutely loved to read. Um, and it was always stuff like Italo Calvino. I say it right half the time. It's Italo Calvino there. I think that's right. And like a wrinkle in time stuff that kind of is a little bit fantastical and I don't know, has like something more than just what's right there on the page. He went to Trinity college in Connecticut. He was early decision there. He was very, very smart. And in his third semester, he traveled to Italy abroad. And when he came back, um, he wasn't feeling good at all. He had And then he was diagnosed with hypoglycemia and hypoglycemia is basically like a blood sugar disorder that makes you very like lethargic and unable to focus. And it really changed his life. And this was in the seventies where hypoglycemia was a very new thing. Like it hypoglycemia itself wasn't new, but like diagnosing it and treating it was so he ended up having to drop out of college and basically just deal with this life-changing condition because he couldn't, he couldn't function. And finally, in his late twenties, he got it under control after years of going to different doctors and psychologists and, you know, just literally putting his life on hold. In 1978, he moved to Kittery, Maine, He'd been previously living with his family in Philly, um, just because that was easier with all the doctor's visits and stuff like that. His sister, Sally, lived in Cape Netic, so it was close enough that he had family in the area, but not so close that he was living in the same house anymore. Reeves lived in a small cabin. It was a rental cabin on what was called Jewett Court, and Dewitt Court no longer exists. Um, it's near where the traffic circle is in Kittery, if you're familiar with the area. Um, he also took courses in welding because um, he was just trying to like find his purpose in life. Um, I think after, you know, after the hypoglycemia and after taking so much time off from his life, he's now in his late 20s. He doesn't really know what he wants to do. Um, and then he finds welding and he really enjoys that. Um, so he took up a job at Donnelly Manufacturing, which it no longer exists, but it was in Exeter, New Hampshire. Um, and they did like sheet metal work and he worked as a welder during the time that he was in Kittery, he dated a woman there. We don't know anything about her. We don't know her name. We don't know 
anything. So this is one thing that we would like to know is who this woman was. Um, we know that she had a son, a baby while she, she and she, that she stayed with Reeves in his cabin, but we don't know who she was. And that's somebody that we would definitely like to talk to. And to um, real quick interrupt you, yeah. sorry. No, please, anytime. I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to lose this point that uh, I feel needs to be made. You said that he was thought provoking, and then you went in to describe uh, his personality. Did you get this information through interviews uh, with the family? How did you come to know him in that more private way? So we spent two days at the Kittery Police Station um, when. I started this case. Um, we talked to the detective and the detective, um, Brian Cummer, who's absolutely wonderful. Like he's the best person that could be on this case. Um, he cares about it so much and it's just really, really nice to see. Um, he invited us down to look at the entire case file. The chief of police gave us permission. Um, and you know, this is the first time where I've ever experienced working with an entire case file. Nothing is redacted. It's just take it and make something with it, um, which is very, very rare and might not ever happen again. That's very rare. Good for you. It was a very cool experience. Um, granted, it's a very small case file. Like there's not a ton there, but um, it was just really interesting to see some of these pieces that I've never seen in person before. Um, so we spent time with the case file and then we interviewed the family, like the family wanted to be a part of it. They came to the police station. We met Sally, his older sister. We met her husband, Dave, who also knew Reeves and um, Hugh, his younger brother. And we probably talked to them for like, I don't know, like five or six hours. Let's talk about Reeves's disappearance a little bit. Was he involved with anything that would lead um, or led you to uh, think that that could have something to do with why he went missing? It's a very mysterious uh, disappearance. No, and that's what's pretty interesting about this case is that Reeves was a homebody. Reeves didn't really have much of a social life. He he loved to read. He loved to be you know, with himself, um, you know, we'd love to find people who knew him who might, you know, have considered him a friend, but while he was in Kittery, at least we don't know anybody that knew him. So he didn't have a social life. You know, he, he wasn't really a big drinker, you know, maybe he would like have a, a beer at home or something like that. We know that he wasn't involved with drugs. He also had like hypoglycemia. So like the the beer situation didn't really happen. Like, I mean, if he had one, it would be pretty rare just because he really had to like limit what he ate. Yeah. He, he really wasn't like into anything that, that could be potentially nefarious or contribute to his death, which is why it's so odd. And to circle back on this individual who you said, he has a child with this woman that no one knows about. Can you take us through the process of how you discovered the existence of this woman? Were you with the police, with the family? And then right up until you hit that stone wall of who is this? Like it's so, you mentioned the word fantastical when you said that the types of books he read, I find like his story is ironic in that sense where that moment 
must have felt a bit fantastical to you, where you'd think that somebody would, you'd think a name would be there. You'd think that there would be something there. So he he is not the father of the child. She had a child um, when they started dating, uh, just to clear that. It's in the notes that, um, and I think it was stuff that Sally remembered um, that he was dating a woman, but the her name isn't written down anywhere and they can't remember what her name was. But we know that he did date somebody and that she had a child. And that's, it's so specific too, because these cabins no longer exist. You know, he, he lived with her in one of these cabins for at least a period of time. I'm not a hundred percent sure of the dates. I want to say like around, I don't know. He was there from like 1978 ish to about 1983 when he went missing. So probably around like 1980 ish. We don't know anything about her. Um, his mother took really good notes but I don't know if at that point she really knew much about the girl that he was dating. That's how you figured out in the first place that there was this person. Yeah. It's just from, uh, from his mother's notes and um, from Sally and Hugh talking about, talking about it. And his mom was taking notes after he disappeared. Yes. That's, that's uh, incredible to me. Yeah. She I- took very good notes. Yeah, it, it's incredible to me. Probably uh, it's, it's like a little fresh right now because we just recorded a, a couple of episodes for um, for uh, the missing podcasts where we you know communicate a lot with the family members of missing people or friends of missing people. And it's very rare that the parents or anybody would like immediately take to um, note taking. I, I don't even remember... I mean, unless we don't know about it, but I mean, I've, I, it's very rare to see. So um, it's fortunate in that situation, but again, like so baffling. Yeah, it's, it's very fortunate that we have her notes because the case file is so thin. Um, and, you know, Detective Avery, who was the original detective on the case, you know, he did the best that he could do. But back then it was just different. Like detectives took notes differently. They took them in their own like personal shorthand kept them on, you know, on person or at home. And there wasn't like a, a more collective database or like a collective sharing of notes like Detective Cummer has done and, you know, created like an entire like storyline of this case so that the next person taking it, if that happens, has a very clear path of everything that we know. Um, it just wasn't It would be like, that's what's one of the things that's frustrating about this case is that the notes are like, we talked to John at the supermarket, asked him some questions, and he said that he didn't see Reeves. And it's like, well, who's John? Um, What did you ask him? And like, when, when exactly was this? And that's like information that we don't have. Okay. Well, yeah, that's unfortunate. It sounds like the, um, Reeves's mom's notes and the case file didn't exactly merge um, perfectly either. So uh, that's too bad. Like, I, I guess it has that all that information been been shared now. And, and I know it's it's been a long time and um, press is part of the strategy um, clearly now. Um, but, uh, you know, is, is that something that's being worked on now? I mean, pretty much everything that is in the case file and everything that's in his mother's notes are in my episode you know, which still it's 
thin, there's a lot of blanks that we don't know. Um, and I think that it just is that Reeves was a very private person. Um, you know, we don't know what he wasn't telling his family if, you know, if there's a scenario there. Um, you know, I know he did speak with his family on a weekly basis, but there was a little bit of um, just not being in touch as much with like his siblings during the time that he was in Kittery once Sally moved from Cape Nettick in Maine, which is very close to where Kittery is, down to Georgia. Her husband got a job, so they had to relocate. This isn't in a time where there's social media, you know, you're not friends on Facebook. You have to like call and call on a landline. So I do know that they were a little bit out of touch at the time that he went missing, but that he had a standing weekly call with his parents on Sunday. And, you know, that was like the check-in. That's where they would talk about everything from the week and, you know, that he would connect with his parents. All right. I think this is a good time to bring us to um, Christmas of 1982. Yep. So that was the last time that Reeves' family saw him. Um, They all went to the parents' home in Philly. And on the way back, Reeves picked up a hitchhiker off the Verrazano Bridge in New York City. and. We know that his name is Richard and things like this. We know through um, Barbara, his mother, remembering stuff that he told her. And after he went missing, started writing this stuff down. Um, So that's where we know Richard, but we don't know Richard's full name. Uh, But we do know that he picked him up. He was a hitchhiker. Reeves always picked up hitchhikers. he, I mean, first of all, it's a different time period, but second of all, he was very generous. He liked to help people. So if there was something that he could do to help somebody like, you know, drop them off somewhere, he would do that. So that was not out of the ordinary for him. So he picked up this hitchhiker. Richard said that he was going to either Detroit, Michigan or Ontario, Canada. We don't know which, which is not in the direction of Kittery at all. Um, And for some reason, he ended up in Kittery with Reeves at his cabin. Um, And Richard stayed there for like two weeks and he didn't really earn his keep. Um, It's a very small cabin too. Like this is pretty much just a studio apartment and Reeves would give him money for cigarettes and he gave him like a spare key to the cabin. And one day, about two weeks later in January, this was January 7th, while Reeves was at work, he left and he took the key with him. And that's all we know about Richard. It's an odd thing. Very odd. So Richard had the spare key. He still, he took it. He did. Um, and, you know, as far as we know, he still has it. We don't know who Richard is. Wow. The only uh, info on Richard, like knowing that you said that's coming from the mom's notes that she took. So... So at some point, Reeves had told his parents that this guy that he picked up hitchhiking after Christmas um, was staying with him. Yes. And we know that by the end of it, I think Reeves was starting to get a little bit frustrated that like he Mm -hmm. wasn't leaving. Um, You know, you just basically have this stranger crashing in your house and kind of overstaying his welcome. So I think that that is probably the reason why it got written down is because it stood out. The only thing about this incident is that it's it's about a month before, you know, Reeves goes missing. So we 
we don't think that it has anything to do with like, could it? Yes. Anything is on the table, but um, we don't really think that it had anything to do with his disappearance. Um, it's just a really odd scenario. Did anyone have descriptions of um, Richard? You know, we know that he was a black man and that's it. Okay. That's all we know. So clearly not the man in the photograph. No. Yeah, no, we know that that's not him. And, you know, a black man named Richard is a very vague description. Like, we don't have an age. Even if we did have an age, that's still a very vague description. Interesting. I mean, I wonder what was said in that car when they were driving, because he picks him up in New York City. Probably within the first minute, he understands that this person wants to go to Detroit, maybe go over the border into Canada, but... That's like you said, that's not the direction that they were going. So a decision had to be made. Like, do I drop you off so you can, you know, continue in the proper direction? Or do you want to continue with me to my cabin? I, what, I, what do you have any like, how have, how have you been thinking about that? Have you thought about that conversation? I honestly have no idea how that went down because they're just so opposite of directions. Um, I mean, part of me thinks that maybe... I don't know, maybe Richard like didn't really have an idea of where he wanted to go. Like he didn't have a set destination. He was just a little bit more transient. Um, and I don't know, maybe Reeves just because he was generous was like, Hey man, you know, you can come stay with me for a little bit, figure out where you want to go and then, you know, be on your way there. But at least you aren't on the street in January. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Sometime in the early 80s, REO Speedwagon's airplane made an unannounced middle-of-the-night landing. This is my friend Kyle McLaughlin, the star of Twin Peaks. And he's telling me about how he discovered a real-life Twin Peaks in rural North Carolina, not far from where he filmed Blue Velvet. What was on the plane was copious amounts of drugs coming in from South America. Supposedly, Pablo Escobar went looking for other spots, quiet, out-of-the-way places to bring in his cocaine. My name is Joshua Davis, and I'm an investigative reporter. Kyle and I talk all the time about the strange things we come across, but nothing was quite as strange as what we found in Varnumtown, North Carolina. There's crooked cops, brother against brother. Everyone's got a story to tell, but does the truth even exist? Welcome to Varnumtown. Varnumtown is available wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. And um, what about when Reeves suddenly quit his job or, or I guess left his job? Do you have any uh, insight on how that went down? Yes. So... On February 3rd, 1983, he worked his last shift at Donnelly Manufacturing. He worked the morning shift, so he'd be done around like 3.30 p.m. And this is the last time that we know Reeves was actually seen by people he knew, so his coworkers. Every other time, we can't verify if that was actually Reeves or if it was somebody else. So Thursday, he worked his last shift, February 3rd. And this is where it starts to get like weird. The timeline is just odd. So we know that he deposited $70 into his bank account that day and he took out $30 cash and he also purchased guitar strings. And then over the next couple of days, almost all of his valuable belongings were removed from his rental cabin. Literally anything of value, like the guitar was taken, but the guitar strings were left, which is kind of odd. Um, everything except for his contact lenses, which he absolutely needed, and some boxes were left. On Sunday, he missed his weekly call with his family. Um, like I mentioned before, he always talked to his family on Sunday, but his mother, Barbara and Kemp, were out of the country. So his sister, Sally, was checking in with him, um, but she couldn't make contact with him. So she just continued to try to call, you know, it's not that alarming missing one phone call. Um, so she just continued to try to check in and, and check in and, you know, didn't, didn't get in touch with him over the following weeks, his bank account was drained and like to the point where it was overdrawn. And we know this through his check history and the account history, but you know, it, it takes a couple of days for checks to clear and go through and process and all of that stuff. So this timeline um, wasn't discovered until later, but I'm placing it back into the actual time when stuff happened. During the week of February 7th, Sally keeps calling and she can't get in touch with him. And that week, purchases were made through his checkbook at Radio Shack, um, Daymart, which is like, um, it's like a French company of like thermal underwear that was really popular in the 70s, um, pretty expensive and then Shaw's grocery store. The first big purchase was actually made on the 4th. So that's the day after he worked his last shift. We don't know if he was supposed to work on the 4th. Um, we don't know his schedule from that week. We just know that if he was scheduled, he didn't show up past the 3rd. Um, so I'm not sure how that went down, but that is something that we would like to know. Um, so there was a purchase that was made on the 4th at Shaw's, and that's not his normal grocery store. It was at Shaw's in Stratum, which is fairly close to where Donnelly Manufacturing is, and wasn't just like one person's worth of groceries. It was $80, which in 1980, that's $210 in today's money. 
So that's a lot of groceries for one person. And Reeves was frugal with his money. He was very meticulous. He also wasn't making that much money. So, you know, he was very careful with how he spent it. And, you know, there was kind of a joke that on his weekly calls, he would like, you know, tell his mom like, oh yeah, I paid rent. Um, you know, do I have enough money to like buy this candy bar or something just like really meaningful He or uh, meaningless? He would just like talk about his finances like that. Um, so we know that he was very frugal and we know that he was very, you know, careful with his money. So I don't know, spending $80 at the grocery store in 1980 is a lot. And were those groceries um, accounted for somewhere? No, that's the thing is that in this timeline, the police don't know yet that his cabin has been cleared out. And they won't find out until um, they do a wellness check the following week. But they know that the groceries, you know, the groceries aren't there and his cabin hasn't been touched um, because there was a big snowstorm. So they know roughly when that cabin was cleared out and it was not, it, it was before we are, before where we are in the timeline right now. His cabin okay, uh, take us back to the snowstorm. Do you think that has anything to do with the amount of groceries that were purchased? It's possible, but I don't know where where they would be. Um, yeah. Because by the time the police showed up to his cabin, you know, the pipes were frozen, the door was ajar. Um, so there was a little bit of snow inside. And they know, and the, the snowstorm, I think, was on Sunday. Like maybe in around the 5th. So it was pretty close after when he was last seen and there were no tracks in the snow or anything like that. And there hadn't been any snow after that either. Um, I could be getting the snowstorm wrong, but I do know that that's how they figured out when he was last in the cabin. Wow. That's so, that's such a mysterious element to it. And um, okay. So tell me about the other money that, um, that I guess Reeves or someone pretending to be Reeves, uh, was attempting. So the first big purchase was at Shaw's on the fourth, um, for those groceries. And then, um, the next purchase was at Daymart on Wednesday, the ninth. So this is after the call was missed. The weekly call was missed for the first time. He purchased two suits of thermal underwear and one of them was size small. And one of them was extra large, which Reeves was really neither of those. Um, I guess he could have theoretically fit into the small, but we don't know if that was a men's small. We don't know if that was a women's small. Um, we did find a Daymart catalog and we tried to like pair up the pricing to find out exactly what you know item he bought. But um, we came close, but I don't think we found exactly it yet. Uh, but that was about $75, which you know is close to $200 today on two pairs of thermal underwear, which is kind of odd. Two pairs of thermal underwear uh, and in today's money was $270? Yes. So this was like, um, it was a little bit fancier of a store. Like yeah. it, it was, you know, because New Hampshire is a ski resort area. So this is something that you would go to invest in, you know, thermal underwear if you are an avid skier or, you know, if you wanted to do outdoor stuff. Um, 
so they were very well made and but they were very expensive and these were paid with a check they were paid by check yeah by check okay and obviously the checks are now overdrawn and bouncing yes but they don't know that yet because they haven't bounced right okay and real quick one more question you said that we found a catalog and you were looking at this catalog from the from the 70s and 80s yes so we um byron and i who byron also works on the show we tried to find the exact catalog um from the season that he which would have been probably either winter of 1980, probably winter of 1982 or winter of 1982, 83. Cause I don't think spring would have come out yet. Um, we tried to find the exact items and we did find a catalog, but it wasn't that catalog that would have been the active one at the time we found close, but we didn't find the exact items because I don't know if they were in the catalog, like based on, the size that he purchased based on the fact that we know it's thermal underwear and based on the fact of the price that we know he spent. Good, uh, good detecting. Thanks. We also did that for Radio Shack and we found the exact items that he purchased at Radio Shack. And we also right. found them on eBay too. <laughs> oh, really? Um, <laughs> yeah. So what was this, uh, a speaker or, or speakers? Yeah. So he bought um, on Saturday the 12th, he bought a set of speakers at Radio Shack and they were $50, which is about $130 today. And then a deposit was made, a $30 deposit for a $280 car radio system, which is about 738 today. And the day before that, he had taken out $30 in cash from his checkings and $50 in cash from his savings. So I don't know if the deposit, the, the deposit might've been that $30 cash. I'm not sure. Or it might've been on the check that he used to purchase the speakers. I'm assuming it was probably by check because, you know, you want to save the cash. Okay. Well, that's a pretty big purchase. That is, um, you know, as mysterious as the groceries and really all of it is, um, you know, that, that gives us some more clues, I feel like, because that person you know, whether it's reads or not, uh, I suppose has somewhere they're putting that thing. We, were the speakers from Radio Shack uh, connected with the um, radio? No. So the the speakers were like um, just like freestanding, like little box speakers, you know, that you might put on a shelf and connect to like, I don't know, like a, a turntable or something because he did have a turntable. The box was left at the house, but the turntable itself was gone. But he had speakers that worked fine. They just were like the fabric on them was torn a little bit. So it's it's kind of odd that, you know, he would just choose right now to upgrade them. And then the car radio system, it's odd because like he had a Volkswagen Beetle. Like he had a red 1972 Volkswagen Beetle. I don't know if this would have even fit the car. I That's not something that we've looked into. Um, I don't know a lot about like car radio systems and how they fit into cars. If it's just a, you know, but it's like, it's a pretty fancy system. Have you looked into um, any pawn shops that might've been in the area? I know it's a long shot, but it kind of sounds to me like somebody had the checkbook, bought some expensive stuff to flip that for cash. 
we haven't. It's hard because like if we did, I, I doubt that they would have those records. Like the only reason why we know these purchase these purchases were made is because of the bank history. Originally in the episode, I did say that the Radio Shack was in South Portland because that's what we thought, which is kind of a weird thing because South Portland is like, you know, a 45 minute drive from where Kittery is north. But now um, we think that it was in Portsmouth because we just had a meeting with a detective like a month ago going over notes and stuff. And he said that he realized that there was a Radio Shack in Portsmouth. And that would actually make much more sense. And it, all of a sudden it just clicked. And I was like, that's it. Absolutely. He got, he got it from the radio shack in Portsmouth and um, somebody from the original wrote notes wrote down South Portland incorrectly. Cause all these purchases were made in like Portsmouth stratum, all of that, like little area around where Donnelly manufacturing sat and none of them were made in Kittery. Really interesting stuff. Um, okay. Now tell us about, uh, how this photograph, um, of the man in the red hat came to be. So I'm going to back up a little bit because when his parents realize, like his parents come back from the trip on the 12th, they come back. So the same day that this radio shack purchase was made, his parents come back from the trip and his sister, Sally, you know, lets them know she hasn't been able to get in touch with Reeves. So then they try same thing. He misses his call on Sunday. So then on the 14th, he's reported missing by the police or to the police officially by his parents. On Sunday, the day before, a check was written for the balance of the car speakers. So in theory, you know, those speakers were taken home. That car speaker was. We don't know how, but it was taken home. And He's reported missing on the 14th. So this is 11 days after his last shift, after anyone who knew Reeves confirmed that they had seen him. And the police do a wellness check the next day. And then they realize that his cabin was empty and, you know, the pipes were cleaned and, and all of that. That same day, his car, his Volkswagen Beetle, was towed from an unknown location to an Exxon station in the vicinity of... Um, it's in Elwyn Park, which is fairly close to where Donnelly is. Uh, we have no idea where the car was towed from. We just know that it ended up at Exxon. Reeves has a post office box at the Kittery post office. And the police find out that he had last cleaned out his post office box around that time. And they know that, well, you know, he's got he's to have a check coming. So they call up Donnelly Manufacturing and they tell them what's going on. And they're like, you know, there's, there's a wellness checkout for him. He's been reported missing, make him come in and get his check in person. Don't send it out under any circumstance. Do not send that check out. So, you know, they agree. It's all, all good. And then the last purchase was made, um, on the 19th at Shaw's in Stratum. So like I mentioned earlier, this is not his normal place to buy groceries. Normally he would just buy them like in Kittery close by his home. And it was another $61 in groceries. And, you know, at this, this is kind of like nearing the point where stuff is going to start bouncing because like he didn't have that money in his bank account to support all of these purchases. So his bank account was then, you know, after this overdrawn and closed because everything bounced. 
at least $80 in total was withdrawn from during this time period and about $535 was spent in personal checks, which is over $1,500 today. So that's all of his money is just gone. On the 21st, um, which is a couple days after that and about three weeks after Reeves was last seen, somebody tried to pick up the red bug from the Exxon station. Um, somebody who, you know, the Exxon people who didn't know Reeves thought could be Reeves, um, tried to pick up the car, tried to pay by check, but the mechanic was smart and he refused the check. So this person left on foot. There's no description. It's just somebody who looked enough like Reeves that they thought that it could be him, which to be fair, Reeves looks like the every, every man, white guy of the eighties. Like if you look at the man in that photo, that looks like it could be Reeves, but we know it's not, you know, he's got like the long, dark hair. We don't know what his face looks like, but you know, Reeves facial hair was very popular in the early eighties for men. I mean, he just, he looks like the every white guy of the eighties with brown hair in his early 30s this is such a rabbit hole it is which we mentioned at the top of the episode now we've introduced somebody who is passing themselves off as reeves when by all accounts this individual has never been like mentioned over the course of reeves's life right i mean he's never mentioned a friend who was shady or had an altercation with anybody. It's like this specter comes into his life and takes it. Yeah. I mean, Reeves was a very like, you know, peaceful person. So, you know, as far as we know, there wasn't any conflict happening with people. Um, you know, we don't even know if this person knew Reeves. Um, we don't know how, how he came to get the key. Certainly. <laughs> Uh, we have no idea. We have no idea if this person who was claiming to be Reeves was Reeves, you know, like personally, I don't believe that that was Reeves and the family doesn't. And I know that the detective doesn't, but you know, at the time there are no indicators of foul play. So you have this person that people say like, yeah, Reeves came in and, you know, took $30 out. I, I recognized him, you know, but these are all people who like, don't know him on a personal level. They just have seen him come in and take money out and then leave. And somebody who looks enough like him came in, took money out and left. And also pretty brazen of whoever this was, whether it was Reeves over the course of, you know, this week or so where the checks are being written for purchases. If it was Reeves doing that, pretty brazen that he would do that knowing these checks are about to bounce, like knowing he doesn't have the cash. Also, if it's not Reeves and someone pretending to be him, you're still like, you don't know if there's money in that account. You're just writing checks. And then you keep doing it, though. Like you keep doing it in this in this period of time in the same area. Right. It's the same location for the most part brazen to me that someone would keep I know maybe that's a different time period um in the early 80s but do, do you think that they had a, a plan to finally finish off what they had started and then hit, hit the road or something it's possible um I mean they certainly tried to get away with as much as they could out of his bank account but like you know he he lived very modestly he had 
you know, he didn't have like this fancy salary and was living in, you know, a fancy apartment, like the stuff that he had were things that he'd invested in for his life that he would probably keep for a while. So like the idea of him just upgrading it and then draining all of his money is kind of odd. And then he got the man who showed up. Yes. Um, that, so that check that the police called, told Donnelly not to mail it. Well, they mailed it. Apparently somebody called up and said that they were Reeves and said that like, well, listen, I've got a new job, that check, just, just mail it. Like I've, I've talked to the police. I've talked to the family. Everything's fine. Mail the check. I have a new job by the way, and I'm not going to come in ever again. And then they did, they mailed the check. It was either somebody who was convinced that that was Reeves enough on the phone that, you know, they mailed it, or it was somebody who had no idea of the police investigation. Like you don't know, we don't know, but for whatever reason, that check was mailed. They mailed it to the post office box and they, the family was like, well, let's, um, can we stake out the police office, the, the post office? I mean, and, um, the police agreed, you know, they didn't have, they're a very small local police station. And so they're like, listen, we don't have the resources to put somebody at the post office to like stake it out. Cause we don't know when this guy is going to come in to pick up the check or if he is, you know, so the family offered like, well, we can do that. Um, and they agreed. So Barbara and Kemp went to stake out the post office, you know, and at this point, like there's no indications of foul play. I think that the family was like partially thinking that maybe Reeves is just having a moment. Maybe he is going to come pick up his check. You know, maybe who knows? We don't know what's going on, but I don't really think that even though the the behavior was bizarre that it necessarily was like, like they knew that something was wrong, but I don't think that it was necessarily like foul play something like he's dead somewhere. I think it was like, you know, let's wait at the post office. Maybe Reeves will come pick up his check and we can talk to him and be like, yo, what's going on? Like, we need to know if, if you're going to go off the grid somewhere, just tell us, just talk to us. We need to know that you're safe. So Barbara was in the post office. She was pretending to be a tourist in Kittery in December, or not December, uh, February, which if you know anything about Maine in February, you know that it is not a tourist destination, um, let alone the post office. So she had her camera. She was just pretending to be a, a tourist. And all of a sudden, this man comes in with a key and she goes over to Reeves mailbox, opens it up, takes out the mail, throws away everything except for the check from Donnelly. And she's never seen this man before. Um, so she confronted him. She's like, you know, what, what, where, where's Reeves? Why do you have his key? What's happening? And the man was like, well, he's with me in an apartment in Portsmouth. Um, if you have a car, I'll take you to him. So then she follows him and they got outside and he ran away. And they weren't able to catch him because at that moment, Kemp happened to be away in the car. So she couldn't just hop in and chase him at that moment. He, he just happened to be away. And fortunately, she did take a photo of him. Um, and it's that, you know, that iconic photo right there. But as you can see, 
he put his hand up and he blocked his face and that's all we have. You know, we don't, we don't have a composite sketch. I wish we did. We have a general description of him, but like, it's, it's a very general description. You know, it, it could be anybody. That is one of the most harrowing parts of any story that I've heard in a long time involving a missing person. The, the mom happens to be there. She's staking out the post office, happens to be there when this person happens to come in. First of all, I couldn't even imagine the, how your anxiety would spike at that moment when you see somebody come in, getting closer to the mailbox, closer, taking a key out. All of a sudden, he's accessing the that um, P.O. box. I mean, she must have been trembling. Like, I don't even know how that would... Have, it's mind-blowing to me that where your anxiety would be at that moment. And then she follows him. And they, they stop, like, where did they stop? And he just ran off and left his car? He didn't have a car. What? Okay. Yeah. I missed that. So he ran he off He didn't on have foot. a car. He ran off on foot, which makes this also bizarre because of the car situation at the Exxon Mobil, where there was a guy who came in on foot who kind of looked enough like Reeves that the Exxon people thought that it could be him to pick up the car and, you know, they denied him a payment by check. So he took off on foot. Wow. So, so bizarre to me. And you mentioned he threw away the other um, mm-hmm. pieces of mail that were in the mailbox, which, and some of those were, were interesting, I guess, uh, especially when you, when you say he throws, he just throw the, throws them away. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was probably just like junk mail or, you know, personal stuff. And he, he, it was very clear that he was there for that check. Right. In retrospect, if I had a time machine, I would go like, you know, take those letters out and give them to police. But like, they weren't thinking like that, I think. Yeah. But this person obviously wasn't bringing, you know, wasn't doing a favor for Reeves and, and going to grab his check and his mail and bring it back to him. And because he's a good friend, like, yeah. Yeah, no, he was there to steal the check for sure, 100%. It never ended up getting cashed, though, because I think that he realized, which is too bad. I wish he were not that smart. <laughs> but um, unfortunately, he never cashed it. You know, and this is this part is just so tragic because, like, you know, you think of, like, his mother and this whole situation is just devastating, like, first thinking like that your son is just kind of ghosting you and not telling you that he's safe and ignoring everything. And then you, you know, you're staking out the post office, kind of like hoping that you're going to see your son. And even though you're angry at him, be able to confront him and be like, what's going on. And then you see this man come in, this man that you don't know, stealing his mail. And, you know, Barbara was a, a petite woman and she just, she just got so much strength in this moment to confront this stranger. And you don't know how this stranger is going to act. You don't know if he's going to lash out or hurt her, but, and then she, she took that photo and, you know, I, I can just imagine her as he ran off being like, well, at least I have that photo. And then you get it developed and that's the photo. That's it. He, his hand is up. You can't see his face. It's just so heartbreaking. Yep, that's something that's totally lost in this. In people who are listening who aren't from the generation of 
the pharmacy bought cameras that you need to go have your film developed. You have your cell phone and you can take the picture and look at it immediately. I didn't even think of that, that she would have been needing to wait for that photo to come back after being developed, only to have the guy's hand perfectly in front of his face. It's it's so heartbreaking. And to know that she was that close to him, you know, like oh. like this man could have something to do with Reeves' disappearance. If he doesn't, he certainly has information. Like, why would he have his key? You know, like. Well, yeah. Un- unpacking that a little more. Why? How would this person even know that a check was on its way to him? I mean, this person had to have known Reeves well enough to know where he worked and that he had a check coming to him. Because Absolutely. he called up. Yeah, he yeah. must have been the one who called, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, f- I fully believe that. Um, and I don't know if there was more than one person that was involved. Like, there had to have been at least one person who looked enough like Reeves to pass as him. And I do believe that it could be this person. I mean, obviously, we can't see his face, but I can see that his hair is a similar color. Um, I don't think that they're the same height, but people don't really pay much attention to that. He doesn't have, like... Um, a build that's so different from Reeves that it would be like, huh, that's odd. Right. They have a beard. It looks like Reeves's facial hair was a little mm-hmm. different, at least in some of the pictures um, than this guy. But yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. What a, uh, what a bizarre grift. Yeah. Another thing that stands out to me is the purchase of the small uh, thermal pants and the extra large thermal pants. And what does that tell you? What do, what do you get from that? Well, I mean, there had to have at least been two people that those were purchased for, whether it was purchased for, you know, like a self, one is for, you know, myself and one is for somebody else. Uh, we're not sure like what, what types those were as far as like the fit goes. Um, we know the thickness of the purchase, like the, the thickness of the material, like one of them was like a heavyweight and one of them was like a regular weight. We don't know like who they were for, like he didn't have you know, like a girlfriend at the time, it wasn't, there wasn't like a clear person of like, okay, well that one's definitely for Reeves and that one's definitely for his girlfriend or, you know, his friend. We have no idea, but I mean, the fact that there's two different sizes and there's two different, like very different sizes at that just kind of tells me that like, and the amount of groceries, like that's definitely like the amount of groceries for two people. Um, and two people who are like, not, you know, being really frugal with what they're purchasing, you know, these probably purchasing like a steak and, you know, like good stuff at the grocery store indulging. It does tell me that there was two people. And if this person doesn't have a car too, um, or if they were, you know, using Reeves car, because we don't know where the car was towed from, there had to have been somebody to drive, you know, like where, where was Reeves stuff? Where did that come from? Where, where did it go? I, I have one more quick question about the um the picture. Was that ever that was taken to the police, I assume, back in the day? Yes, but it was not part of the case file, which is interesting. Um, so when Brian reached out to the family in October of this past year and asked if they wanted to do an article on Reeves, which is the Seacoast Online one, um, Sally brought her mother's notes and, you know, gave more photos and stuff like that. And that photo was included. So the police didn't have that photo initially. And um, we don't 
we don't know why we don't know if it was just like, you know, it got lost. Um, because we would think that Barbara would have given that photo over to the police. Absolutely. Um, for some reason it wasn't circulated either. So this photo hitting the internet, um, in 2021 is kind of the first time that it was circulated, which kind of blows my mind. And I wish that there was a composite sketch done. You know, it's, it's one of those things in retrospect that I would have, I would have taken the mail and I would have like told her, like, let's go get a sketch done. But you know, those things weren't done. And the police, I think, you know, they just kind of came to a point where it, it just went dead because there's no signs of foul play. He's an adult. Um, they reached out to unsolved mysteries to cover his case. They were going to cover his case. And then NBC's lawyers stepped in and were like, mm, let's not, because, you know, we don't know if this man is off the grid or not. Um, even though it's like really weird. There's been no sign of him, any sightings or anything? No, there's been nothing. There's been no activity. I mean, his bank account was closed. There's been no social security activity. You know, Reeves did need, you know, he did have hypoglycemia and he needed medication for that. So if he did go off the grid somewhere, like, I mean, that's not, you can't get medicine for that and also live like, you know, in the woods of Vermont or whatever. Um, so we, we don't think that that's the scenario. We think that foul play was definitely involved and that for whatever reason, this was like a crime of opportunity. We just don't know where the opportunity came from. Well, you certainly, uh, certainly signed yourself up for a truly, um, Jessica Fletcher worthy mystery here. Right? It's it's so baffling. It's so baffling. And I know that it's really Brian Cummer, the detective on it, is really passionate too. Like it's he's just done such a great job and organized all the notes. And this was something that he had been reviewing like on a monthly basis before he was like, you know what, let's try to get it out there again. And that's kind of where, you know, I jumped in to help. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.